Hi, everyone. I'm Eddie. I'm a grateful member of the Al-Anon Family Groups. And I'd like to thank Katie for those nice words she said about me. And I'd also like to thank the, the Alatina Roundup Committee for selecting me to do the honor of being your speaker. And I also want to extend an extensive uh, thank you to the staff for locking up all of the tomatoes and eggs in the back storeroom. A little quick story, uh, real quick. Uh, you know, I've been on the Alatina Roundup for a number of years on the committee, and we meet every Wednesday, well, I should say the last Wednesday of March, and we plan for the coming Roundup. And a year ago, came to the meeting, and Don put me on the side and said, you know, mention something about the speaker for this year. And, and I thought he meant to be the host. Now, when you get older like me now, you know, the hearing starts to go. And it's the first thing that goes. Trust me, it is the first thing to go. So I said, oh, yeah, no problem, Don. I can do that. That's, I've done that before. And I've been the host before. And I said, no, that kid you did. And I said, no problem. Well, fast forward now to last year, about just about this time, I was sitting out the, the, the desk out front doing the 50-50 and helping with registration. And Don put some flyers out for this year's roundup. So I pulled around and went to see who I was going to be the host for. So I'm looking down and I see how on the says, Eddie L. from Ackworth. I live in Kennesaw. <laughs> so I'm saying, who the heck is this guy, Eddie L. from Ackworth? Now I know everybody that comes to the meetings in Al-Anon all around the area here. And I'm saying, who is this Eddie L.? Because in my mind, our speakers come from all around the country sometimes. And all of a sudden it hit me. Tom didn't ask me to be the host. He asked me to be the speaker. Well, I jumped out of that chair like a cannon. I was shot out of a cannon. I jumped up and I got the fire of my hand. I went, where's Don? Anybody see Don? Anybody see Don? Don comes walking down with Jerry. And I said, Don, this isn't me. Yeah, you said you could do that. Oh, no, no. I said I could be the host, not the speaker. I've never done this before. Oh, no, Jerry said, don't worry about it. You can hear him. Don't worry about it. I said, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. Well, I sat in the back of the room for that Alan speaker, and I had no idea what she said that day. None whatsoever. I was saying, what am I going to do? How am I going to get up here? How am I going to get in front of people? You know, how am I going to do this? That's the meeting, I called my sponsor, and I told my sponsor about it, and I told the story. He said, hey, no problem. Look at the bright side. I said, where's the bright side? You got a whole year to get ready for this. <laughs> so, you know. God only knows, God's my higher power. God only knows what's going to come out of my mouth today. So I just hope he's up behind me here helping me along. So thank you again for letting me be your speaker today. I don't have that typical Al-Anon sad story to tell you. I wasn't born in an alcoholic family. I wasn't born in a dysfunctional family. I had a great loving parents. Not to say my parents didn't drink. They were drinking beer, beer drinkers, but they never did it in the house. There was never beer in the house. You know, I'm from Elizabeth, New Jersey. And up in Elizabeth, we've got, we have bars and we have family taverns. And they're about every three or four blocks apart. And my parents went to one of those family taverns. And they would go on a Friday or Saturday night, and the postmaster and his wife came, and the fire chief and his wife came, and my aunt and uncle came, and the kids came. We went to the back room. We played cards. We played, you know, penny, pitch pennies and everything. We had a good time. I would come out to the bar once while I see my mom and dad, you know, I'd sip a little taste of the beer, take the studs off the beers. But that was it. I never really had a taste for anything of liquor. I never did. Probably the only two instances in my early life that I had with anybody that drank was I was about 14, and my dad got me a job with a fellow that sold produce on the back of his truck. And I would meet him at his house about 7.30 in the morning, and we'd pack everything up, and we'd go around selling produce. Well, we'd get about three blocks from the house, and he would stop the truck, and I'd start selling. Next thing, he disappeared. He walked into the bar. And that was the way it went for the rest of the morning. So by noontime, I was sending all the money. Well, this lasted about two weeks, and I told my father, I can't do this. I just I didn't want to do it at all, and I quit. And the other one was my best buddy who lived in next door to me. We lived in two family houses, and his father was an accountant, went to work every day in a suit, shirt, white, t- white shirt, a tie, 
uh, came home, changed, sat down and drank beer and smoked cigarettes and went to sleep. But he never bothered anybody. So I never had anybody in my immediate life that drank too much. I really didn't know what alcoholism was. I never even heard the word when I was younger. Graduate high school, went to work. Um, went to work in shipping and receiving departments for most of my uh, first 12 years of my pilot career. And, you know, got exposed to some folks that drank. It was a bowling team. I got on the bowling team. Of course, you know, on a bowling team, you go to the bowling alley. The first thing you do, you know, the waitress come and you get drinks. I'm only 18 years old. And the guys all told me, oh, yeah, he's 21. Don't worry. Give me a drink. I guess they drink. Didn't make a difference to me. Didn't care. But then I got married. And I went to work for an electrical manufacturer. Big, you know, I needed more money, so I went to work for a better job. And I started as a night shipping clerk, and then I progressed on to days, and they had a golf league, they had a bowling team, and they had softball teams. All the departments had teams. And, again, everybody drank. And I swear, someplace on that application form, there was a block. And if you checked that block, I said, do you drink? And if you checked that you drank, you got hired. Because everybody in that company drank. Everybody did. But it didn't... I would go out, I would have a couple of, you know, drinks, and, I, you know, I'd have, you know, my taste was sweet. I like rum and coke. I like coke. So, you put rum in, you know, that's what I drank for most of the time. If I had anything to drink, that's what I always drink all the time. And if anybody knows anything about uh, sweet drinks, you know, if you drink too much of that, you're going to get sick. And I did one time, and that was the end of that. You know, I didn't like that feeling, you know. Did not like that feeling at all. It was probably why I never didn't drink too much after that either. But then I went to work for a, uh, you know, later on I went to work for a trucking company. And I got in operation dispatch and operations. And uh, I get that wanderlust. You know, I was sending drivers all over the country. And I was loving it. I always wanted to live someplace other than Elizabeth, New Jersey. And I sent in trucks to California. Oh, I wanted to take 10 pictures back and show me California and everything. And, um, and later on, one of the fellows that was our safety director moved down to South Carolina. And he called me up. He says, Eddie, you got to come down here. You just got to come down and see South Carolina. This is absolutely beautiful down here. I came to work today, and I had one person from me at the stop sign. That was it. Nobody else. And he's from, he was from New York, too, in the New York area. Up there, we have a lot of congestion, like we have in Atlanta. And so we did spring break, uh, you know, back about 88, I guess it was. We went down there, and the kids were off, and we went down to South Carolina. I fell in love with it. Went over by the Outer Banks, fell in love with North Carolina. But in 1990, I was, I out that Eddie wanted to leave New Jersey, he wanted to move to North Carolina. And my old boss was working for a company, and they had an opening. Statesville, North Carolina, just above Charlotte. I didn't hesitate. I jumped on that job so fast, it wasn't even funny. Came down here, they rented me an apartment, but they changed their mind about eight months and they dragged me back to New Jersey again. All right. Well, then uh, I turned down another thing to go in uh, 93 to come down to North Carolina. I'm one of these guys that if all my ducks aren't lined up in a row, I don't make a big decision like that. I turned down going to California twice. I could have lived in Denver. I could have worked in Chicago, which I never would have done. That's too cold. But, you know, I just didn't want to know. So in the, in the uh, December of 1995, the owner of the company called me into his office. And he asked me, he said, do you still want to go south? And I said, the bear poop in the woods? Of course I want to move south. You know, and we sat down and we talked. And he outlined this whole thing that we were going to open up the southeast. And I was all, yeah, going to North Carolina again. I, was, oh, I couldn't wait to go. And as we're walking out the door, he tells me, he says, oh, by the way, he said, um, you're not going into operations no more. I was director of operations at that time. He says, you're going to the sales department. And I looked at him and he says, sales, you're sending a Yankee down south? Do <laughs> you have a vendetta against me? Do you want to see me hanging from a tall oak tree? <laughs> And he said, I said, well, you've been talking to these people for years. I said, oh, yeah, that's different. I'm going to tell you, that's different. Now I'm going to be foot, it's racing right in front of me. No way I want to go south like that. He said, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just like you, don't worry about being a speaker, right? <laughs>
So January 1st, 1996, I started off in Atlanta. Actually, I started off in North Carolina until my vice president of sales came down. And we came down to Georgia. He went to introduce me a couple of our big accounts like Nabisco, Kmart. And uh, I said, this is the place I have to be. I have to be in Atlanta, not North Carolina. This is the North Carolina was 10 40 years behind Atlanta, that, you know, they were nowhere near as big, and the business was here. And uh, so they gave me, you know, the up people moved down to Georgia, and I settled in Kennesaw. Shortly after that, our sales rep over in Texas decided to quit. They gave me Texas and Louisiana on top of all of this. And now I got the whole South. I didn't even know what I was doing. I'm in sales. Now, I had worked for this trucking company about years ago back in New Jersey, and the sales guys wanted me to come into the sales department with them to get out of operations. But I can remember back in the 60s and 70s, you know, back in those days, um, we took a customer around for the three martini lunch. You took him out at night. You drank. You took him to the go-go bar. And I saw what they looked like the next morning. And I didn't want to look like that. And I say, I don't want to go to the sales department. I had nothing to do with sales. That was my biggest fear of going into the sales department. Meeting people, no problem with that. I, I handled it very well. I did very well with it. But that was my fear. But fortunately for me, in the mid-90s, people were very aware of drinking and going out and drinking and getting drunk. And I was blessed with a lot of customers that didn't like to drink. We went out for dinner, one drink, and then it was coffee or soda. So I was very fortunate in that aspect. Well, Fast forwarding on to uh, January '99, we had—I got married. We had four kids, and um, just going backtrack a little bit. When my oldest daughter got to be 21, she went out and bought a uh, half a gallon of Bacardi rum for me. And I said, "Whoa, half a gallon of Bacardi rum! Look at this!" Well, my birthday's in June, so she went and she bought another half gallon bottle of Bacardi rum. And I looked at it and I said, whoa, that's enough. You know, I've got about five years supply now. I don't even think about that much out of the first bottle. You know, don't keep buying these half-gallon bottles of rum. It's not going to run place. And all the years I worked in warehousing and transportation, back in those days, when the salesman would come in with a bottle of booze. At Christmas time, I had all bundles of bottles of booze. So I had this big liquor cabinet. I had all kinds of booze. You name it, I had it. I had scotch. I had 12-year-old scotch and was probably 36 years old. <laughs> I had rye. I had, you name it, I had I had Sambuca. I had Emerald. I had Blackberry Brandy or Apricot Brandy. I had everything in the, you know, in the cabinet. And uh, so in January of 99, my wife of 34 years and my four adult children died. And um, I remember about two weeks after the funeral, I was on my way to work. And I got the traffic light down by McCullen Parkway in 041, right by the airport. And the sun was just coming up over the, you know, the horizon. And I looked up there, and I looked at the sky, and I said, okay, God, now what? All the years I wanted to leave New Jersey, all the years I wanted to move and be someplace else, and I finally made the decision move, now this happens. What's next? Boy, little did I know what he had in mind for me. <laughs> you know, the first 53 years of my life I spent in New Jersey, I thought I did a lot of things. These last 22 years have been... <laughs> a friend of mine that we worked back in that trucking company back in New Jersey, when I came down here, I called him and told him I was moving down to Georgia. He said, guess what? I'm going to Georgia too. My company sent me down to land also. So he settled up in Alfred, and I settled over here in Kennesaw. But we got together. Now, my late wife was very anti-social. Um, she would never go to any functions. Every time we had someplace to go around to dinner, she wouldn't go. I had to make an excuse for her, and I was very good at making excuses for her, which helped me out in my future. Um, but we always got together. I knew his wife and everything. We'd get together, and they came to the funeral and everything, and they were good friends. And when my VP would come down, we'd all get together. We all used to work together. So that September of 99, his wife calls me up at work, and she says, I'm having a uh, 50th birthday party for Hank on, you know, in October. I want you to come to the house. I said, no, I don't feel like I'm, I'm not in the mood for that. What are you doing? Nothing. I'm just 
on the house working. You see anybody dating anybody? No. No. I said, I said, who's all come to this party? So we got couples, singles. Whoa, time out. No. What do you mean singles? I don't hear anything about the no matchmaking. Oh, no, I didn't, I didn't mention it that way. I said, all right, fine. I didn't mention it that way. So. But I didn't want to go. And my two daughters were living with me, and my son-in-law, future son-in-law was living with me also, and um, they convinced me I should go. Because I just, you know, and God must have thought that I'd become a dull and boring person. And he wanted to put a little spark into my life. <laughs> so I go to this birthday party, and I was actually late. I stopped to pick up a couple of bottles of wine, because I know that he said you're supposed to do something like that, so I bought a couple of bottles of wine. And I didn't know anybody but Janet and Hank. I didn't know anybody else at this birthday party. You know, they met a whole bunch of people. They had, had customers coming down, and I didn't know who these people were. So here I am, mind my own business, standing in front of the stove in the kitchen. Right? And this blonde comes up. And she's got a chocolate-covered strawberry in her hand. And she says, open. You know, but she shoved that strawberry in my mouth. And as she was doing this, some of the chocolate from the chocolate covers fell on my yellow golf shirt. So I remember what color shirt I wore. So she got panicky, and she ran to get some clothes on real quick. And she came back, and as she was wiping it off, our eyes met. Now, you know the old story that tell you that when you meet that certain person, that the bells and the whistles go off? Well, not only did the bells and the whistles go off, it was the entire Macy's Fourth of July fireworks. <laughs> I mean, it was like, whoa, wow. We started talking, and we didn't stop talking until about 8.30 the next morning. We never went to sleep. We just sat there talking. And I learned a lot about her. And the funny thing about it was, she knew Janet and Hank more than I knew them. She had been friends with them long before. Her old boyfriend used to work with them at another trucking company, and he worked with my VP. It was a big, happy family. She knew everybody I knew. She knew customers that I knew. And she said, oh, this is, this is unbelievable. She was going through a terrible divorce, and she was supposed to have come down the month before when she got sick. And she didn't come down that month before she came down on Hank's birthday. And, you know, so I don't, you know, this is like, everything's just like, oh. What's going on here? She also told me she had a disease called Monastinia gravis. She was died in 1985. She was intubated for four months. And I admired her for her strength and her will to live. And she expressed that to me. We we just talked about everything in life in general. And, you know, I knew right away this is the girl. I knew this is the person for me. And uh, I started our long-range uh, relationship because she had to go back to New Jersey. And I met her at the airport. That's when you could go down to the airport, go to a gate, and I met her at the airport before she got on the plane. <clears throat> and we uh, started that long-range talking. My first month's phone bill was $300. <laughs> We talked a little bit too much. This is Tad. Um, she would come down, and she was, when I first met her, she was doing a thing called plasmapheresis, where they take the blood out of one arm, run through a machine, and put it back in the other arm. Like they do dialysis, similar to that. And she could go, she, at one time when she first got sick, she had to do this every single day. They removed the thymus gland, which sits behind your heart. So she had open heart surgery. And the plasma freezes, you know, the doctor had drugs, started getting better and better and better. She could go longer times. So she was at the point where she could go about three weeks without having the treatment. So she would have to go back to New Jersey. And we started looking around for hospitals that could do this. You know, so I wanted her to move here, and we found everything down at Emory. So we put all of her doctors down at Emory. So now everything, you know, finally, eventually, I convinced her to move down here. And she moved in with me. And everything was just going, oops, excuse me. It was going beautiful. It was going beautiful. We were having such a great time. We were having 
the best time of my life. We were just laughing, going places. She went over to Texas with me on a couple of trips, met customers. Uh, I had a customer that I could never get out to lunch. I could never get her out to dinner. Finally, she went to dinner one time with her husband. And um, I brought Deb with me this one time. We went out to dinner. And the next time I called to make arrangements, she said, is Debbie coming? No, she can't make it this time. Well, let's skip us this time. Come the next time. So, wait a minute. You scold me all the time. Well, that's because before we met Debbie, you know? So, she was a compliment to me, you know, after with the business world. It was great. Now, she has a medical disability, so she doesn't work. So, I worked every day. I went to work, and I would come home. And she, when she came down, she had her own checking account. She had her own, you know, credit cards and everything. And I would come home from work, and all my mail would be on the kitchen table. And I never saw her mail. So now everything was going smooth. And all of a sudden, we started having the myasthenia acting up again. So I was told. I didn't know what was going on. I had no idea what was going on. But we were having problems with the myasthenia. She was getting sick. And we were forever going to Embry. And we didn't go to Emory at 3 o'clock in the afternoon or 5 o'clock at night. We always went at 11, 12, 4 o'clock in the morning. Now, when you go to the hospital, as many times as we were going down there at that hour, they get to know you. They knew what was going on. I did it. I wasn't aware of what was happening. We started uh, something I never did before. I'd come home from work. We'd have a couple of drinks after dinner. We'd sit in the house. You know, it was nice. we have a nice extended deck in the back of the house. We'd sit out there. We were having a couple of drinks every night. Two was about all I would do. I had no idea how much she was drinking. I, wasn't, I was never watching. I just didn't watch. But that's all I would drink. And that was something I never did in my entire life was drink after work. Never did. And we were doing just about every night of the week. We bought a wine rack. We had this five-bottle wine rack on our fireplace. Filled it up five bottles of wine. One uh, Saturday, we were over to the local liquor store, our discount liquor store, and we were putting bottles into the buggy. See, I know how to say buggy, not cart. And uh, I'm looking in the, the cart, and I'm looking at it, and I'm saying, I had one of those deja vu moments. I have been here and done this before. And this is back in time when you had a checkbook. I reached my back pocket and pulled out my checkbook. And I'm looking sure enough, just two weeks prior to this, we had bought about $135 worth of alcohol. Now I'm looking in and I say, we've got more than $135 worth of alcohol in this cart. Buggy. So now I went home and two of those bottles were wine. And I go home and I looked at the wine rack that we had there. It had the five bottles of wine that was empty. So now things are starting to roll in my mind now. What's happening? Alcohol runs pretty deep on both sides of her family. She's Irish. I love her for enough. But she's got a little bit of German in her, so she's good. But um, I started getting suspicious now what was happening. And then um, one day I went into that uh, expensive expensive liquor cabinet I had. I went to get a little... Blackberry brandy. When we poured it out, it came out white. We reached in for another bottle. That came out white. It was water. She drank the whole thing dry. It was all gone. Including my 36-year-old scotch. <laughs> Which I never would have drank in any way, but that's beside the point. It was gone. It was a, it was a keepsake. It was a nice fancy, you know, decanter. But it was all gone. Everything, every single piece. And that's when the arguments started. That's when the fights started. Then we started really having some headaches. Uh, she realized then she had a problem. She went down to a detox at Emory three or four times, maybe five times. I don't know how many times she went down for a week to dry out. She would come back home, and within a matter of another week or two, she would be back, back drinking again. And I started coming home because we do these stupid things. We always do our silent honors. You know, I search for the bottle, look around the house, find one. In the beginning, she was hitting pretty good. I had, you know, dig up things, had under the seat covers, under the cushions in the living room and everything. Then finally, she got smart. 
she would leave the bottle out. And she would leave it a little bit in the bottom of the bottle because she knew that once I found that bottle, I would leave her alone. I wouldn't bother her no more. So what she was doing then was buying two or three bottles at a time. So she had always had one in reserve. But I'm dumb. I'm stupid. I don't know any of this. I'm not paying attention to it. Now, one Saturday, I was out. She was out to the store shopping. And uh, I went out to the, get the mail. First time I got the mail in a long time. And I was sorting out the mail in the kitchen. And I came across her credit card bill. Yeah, I opened it. Not supposed to do things that I opened it. And sure enough, there it was. It must have been 15 entries. And she wasn't going to the discount liquor store. She was going to the local store in Kennesaw. Now, I don't know what I was more mad about the fact that she was going there and paying five to $8 more for a bottle, or the fact that she was drinking so much, because I could see by the, the, the quantities, she was buying two, three, four bottles at a time. So she, you know, she had a stockpile. I was angry. I was mad. Looked at it, and I looked at that, and I reached into the drawer where we keep pictures, and I pulled out the drawer, took a picture of her, got in the car, and drove down to that liquor store. Now, I walked into that liquor store, and I probably sound a little bit something like Johnny Cash. That, that song, a boy named Sue, and he found his father in that drunken saloon there, his drunken father in the saloon. And I probably walked in and said, my name is Eddie Lenhart. And this is a picture of my wife. And she's an alcoholic. And if you ever sell her another bottle of alcohol again, and it sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the Terminator was, I'll be back. <laughs> Now, I'm from New Jersey. Uh, we don't do idle threats. And I'm sure I said more than don't sell her another bottle of alcohol. Now, for about 25, 30 years, I used to carry a baseball bat in the trunk of my car. And it wasn't because I paid a lot of baseball. It's because I said that's how we settle things like this. And I promise you, God said, I did not have the bat with me that day. I did not have the bat. But I'm sure... I threatened this gentleman. Because I know because on Monday morning she called me at the office when she went to buy a bottle and he let her into the store. Said, <laughs> your husband was here and I can't sell you no more. Leave the store. I can't sell you. You have to, he'll, he'll be back. Your husband, he said he'll come back. So I know I must have threatened either to destroy his store or break all his merchandise or hit him over the head with the baseball. But I must have done something. But, you know, he, and she was mad. Oh, she was mad at me. Boy. And, you know, but then she realized that she had a problem. And by this time, my kids found out. My kids all knew what was going on, but we didn't tell mom and dad. She made me promise never to tell mom and dad. She didn't want them to know that she was drinking. So we uh, went up north a number of times, got back home, and she was pretty good a couple of times. She was good. She didn't drink. And she had started going to AA meetings. And she doesn't like to drive at night, especially in areas that she wasn't too familiar with. And we were going a lot of over East Cobb, but we were going to meetings at. And um, I was taking her, and I would go to meetings. I would sit with her sometimes, and I'd sit in the back of the room, and I'd sit in the car. So I started learning a little bit about AA and what it was all about, because I'd never, ever had this problem. And, of course... The word Alanon came up, but there's nothing wrong with me. She's got the problem. She just stopped drinking. What am I going to go to Alanon for? What's, what's, what's Alanon? I knew what AA was. I knew that if you went to the meetings all the time, you got a sponsor, you'd get better. And that's all she had it too. So what, I, what am I going to go to Alanon for? Nothing wrong with me. I'm not doing anything wrong. Besides, I thought it was a cult anyway. But that's beside the point. So... We went up to uh, New Jersey in uh, December 2004, and everything went fine for the first week, and then all of a sudden, just before we left, she drank, she got drunk, and mom and dad found out, and it was a disaster. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. We came home, and that's when she realized that she had to go into treatment, so she went to a 30-day treatment center. 
the lady that ran that center at the time gave me her business card. And on the back of the business card, she wrote that I had excess to the facility. Anytime I wanted to, 24, time, 24 hours a day, I could come in any time to see her. And I did, not all the time, but I did most times. And I always came in with hands full of cookies, potato chips, pretzels, not only for the other patients that were in there, but also for the staff. And I was feeding them also, so they let me in the door all the time. But it was amazing because I saw something that I hadn't seen. She was a different person. She was changed. She was even better than the girl I met four years ago, five years ago. And after 30 days, she came out, and she started doing 90 days, 90 meetings. She got a sponsor. She had one before. It worked out. She wasn't ready for it. But she got a different sponsor, and, and she knew the sponsor. She had met her in another meeting someplace. I knew because she's from New York, too. So they, they played it pretty good. And um, that sponsor of hers had a lot of influence on this guy. And why I'm here, okay? Her home group at the time was right here in Cartersville. We met on Friday nights. So her sponsor brought her up here first couple of meetings. And the next time, you know, she had something to do, she, I had to take her up. She didn't want to drive up here by herself. And she said, oh, by the way, there's an Allen on meeting at the same time. Whoopee. <laughs> Allen on meeting. What I really wanted to do. Right? So now I come up in the parking lot and she get in the car and I'm deciding what I wanted to do. Do I really want to walk into this alley and meet or not? I don't know what to expect. But during the course of going through the AA meetings, I heard this was a family disease. So I figured maybe there is something there that I'm missing. Because she's getting better and I'm still the same person. So I went in sat down and as the meeting got ready to get started I looked around the room and it was me and 13 ladies <laughs> now like I said I'm from New Jersey you can't intimidate me too easily <laughs> now these ladies did not intimidate me there's a couple that they did not intimidate me they just scared the living shit out of me <laughs> there was a couple ladies there and there's a couple of ladies here that were there at my first meeting who testified they were kind of tough. They had been in me for a long time. Now, I did all our readings. We went around and did all the readings. But when it came to a topic, zipper, I wasn't saying nothing. Because I was afraid to bite my mouth and said the wrong thing. They would put my head off of my neck and hand it back to me on a silver platter. <laughs> but I kept coming back. That was the main thing. I kept coming back now. Again, you know, to the hour two around them now. She comes home one Friday night, we're on the way home. She says, I have to come back up next, this is in March. I have to come back up next Wednesday. I said, for what? So there's a, my said something about service work. So we talk about service work. Says, well, I, there's a roundup coming up. She says, I'm going to have to do some things at this round of work. We can't be kidding me. So, again, we came up on Wednesday night. Don't ask me why I walked into the room. I had no business going into the room. It was her service work. I knew anything what I was going to do. I walked in, and guess who's in the room? Some of my 13 girls from Friday night being doing their service work. <laughs> so I sat there, and I'm good grace, you know, there we go. So I didn't know what to do. I just sit and listen. Jerry was doing the show at the time, and the uh, fellow was running the ice cream social. He said, you need help with somebody scooping ice cream. I guess I could do that. Raise my hand. Scoop my screen. I'm still doing it. <laughs> I did it for about three years. And it was funny. We had these five metal stainless steel scoops that we use. And we wash them. We put them in a bag after we're finished. And after three years, he handed the bag to me. And he said, take care of these. And he left me. He walked away from me. So I'm sitting there. I'm going to do these things. So I walked to Jerry and he said, well, I think he's passed the baton on to you. And that's what I've been doing for the last, probably, I guess, the last 11 years I've been doing the ice cream social. And, you know, it's service work. And, you know, in the beginning, when I, I came down, I mean, we, well, let's, let's get back a little bit here. I was going to that one meeting, then her sponsor was also going to a meeting down in Marietta on Thursday nights. 
And guess what they had there also? They had another Al-Anon meeting. So now I'm going to two meetings a week. Now, look at me, all right? Now, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. I'm reading all the literature. I bought some books and started reading up on it. And I'm listening and I'm hearing things that I probably wouldn't have heard before if I hadn't come to Al-Anon. And learning a difference about myself, a calmness starting to come over me. Then her sponsor said that, uh, have you gone to church? Well, I'm Presbyterian, she's Catholic. We may go to church occasionally. Well, why don't you come down to our church? So she comes home and says, my sponsor wants us to go to church with them on Sunday. Whoopee, okay. <laughs> All right, got to listen to what her sponsor tells her. So we go to church, and they sit in the fourth row from the stage, and they want us to sit in the third seat, third row from the stage. And I'm old-fashioned Presbyterian. The choir, these mundane hymns that we sang, dull and boring hymns, and, uh, you know, I'm looking up, and there's the band up there. And all of a sudden, they get up, and they start playing. And the sponsor's husband He's always says, ah, Led Zeppelin is playing today. <laughs> it was so loud I could feel my chest vibrating. Because <laughs> we were in a third row from the stage. The funny thing about that is, that was back in 2005. We still sit in the same, same seats. All these years we still sit in the same seats all the time. You know, that's creatures of habit, I guess. I go and do this for about a year, year and a half, going to the two meetings. Then after one Friday night meeting, Jeanette came up to me and said, Would you be willing to help me get a meeting started closer to home, in the Ackworth area? I didn't hesitate. I jumped right at the opposite hill right away. And so the Alice in the Hilltoppers got started on Monday night. But when we started, it was just the two of us, staring at each other, reading our readings back and forth, for how long, two months maybe? In the meantime, there's like 75 people in the AA meeting right next to us. So I came out one night, and, and everybody hung around the hall in the, in the room there and talking, and I saw a couple of fellows from the meeting. I hadn't seen them too often. I seen them a couple of times, and I said, hey, you guys married? One guy said, yeah. The other guy said, I have a girlfriend. Fantastic. I just want to tell them that we have an Alan meeting. Bring them down next week. Well, they looked at me like I had two capes on. You know, they turned around and they walked away from me just like that. So I never said that again. I never did that again. I said, eh, that's not a good thing to do. Right? So now we're, uh, we're going along in 2008. Um, one of our sponsors, again, back in my life, but this time it's her husband. And at the church one Sunday, he says, you know, I was talking to him at an AA meeting at North Star Church. He said, I told the folks at church, and they said, uh, if somebody would be willing to start an AA meeting, they'd give us a room. And I didn't hesitate. I jumped up just like that right away. And that's how the Blue Springs group got started, which is my home group. We meet on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock at North Star Church. And I've been there, and we just celebrated our 10th anniversary this past July. And, you know, and we still go to North Star Church. It's our favorite church. Now, the beginning, in all the years that I was in, early times into the program, I didn't get a sponsor. Because, like I said, I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. And everything was going so smooth. We had the best seven and a half years. We were going to meetings. We were doing the roundup. We were having a great time. Then all of a sudden, that disease reared its ugly head. And she started drinking again. We went back to this. You know, it's so funny how fast you can revert back to old habits. And I immediately went right back to doing the same stupid things that I did in the beginning. I didn't get a sponsor, I had nobody to talk to. I was covering, I was lying, I was making alibis. Everything I did in the past, I did all over again. It had the same results. 
Zilch. That dude's changing. Finally, I decided to get a sponsor. And um, it was tough because he was a professional person. He had a business. And um, I'm retired now. And we just couldn't get together when I went to get together and he went together. I was going to be able to, something's coming up and, you know, we didn't get together. But we started working the steps. And I realized that, uh, you know, I, was, I met another fellow about four years ago in a meeting. And we hit it off. I liked him. We're both from New Jersey. He's from, I'm from Elizabeth. He's from Linden, which is in the very next town. We're about the same age. And I asked my sponsor, do you mind if I uh, change sponsors? He never a problem with that. He understood. So I went to come in and I asked him if he'd be my sponsor. And at first he said no. I was devastated. So oh, you got to be kidding me. Then he recanted and he said he would be my sponsor. But before we got started, he had 18 questions. He wanted me to answer first. I said, 18 questions? You're not talking about the steps. What's that? 18 questions? What are you 18 questions? So I said, if you meet me uh, next week at the meeting, I'll give you, I'll give you a question. So I go and I get these questions. I'm looking at 18 questions. And I'm sitting there and meeting as a wise as I can be because I come out with smart remarks sometimes. And the first question on top of the list was, why do you go to Al-Anon? So I said, hey, I can answer this right away. I have nothing better to do at night. He just looked at me. Number two question. What are you going to do if the alcoholic still keeps drinking? No problem at all. I just give her a left hook. Again, no answer. So I figured, uh-oh, I'm in trouble here. So I said, I said, I better make these questions down. And we still have this difficult because I'm one of these guys like do one-line answers. I don't like to go into paragraphs. He likes paragraphs. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's going to be a process in <laughs> to get me into doing paragraphs. I don't even know where to put my comments. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but the whole story is that when I, you know, years ago when I was at an AA meeting with Deb, and uh, I heard a person say that uh, the alcoholic was broken. And a light bulb went off. I, I said, I heard that a long time ago, broken. When I lived back in New Jersey. I lived in a house that was built in 1932. I had four kids. So that word broken must have come up four or five times a week. And over the, you know, when you own a house and you get like that, you can't afford to pay the plumber, the electrician, or this guy to do things. You've got to learn to do them yourself. So over the course of years, I accumulated a lot of tools. So I went home that night after me, and I went out to my garage and looked at my tool chest. And the first thing I looked at was my screwdriver. Oh, yeah, I can use this. Tighten the screws, loose screws in your head when she drinks. Then I picked up the wrench and the pliers. So, oh, yeah, I can use this to tighten those bolts that are not to keep your head from spinning when she drinks. Then I reached over and I grabbed my level. And that little bubble in the level, and I said, oh, yeah, she is three degrees off center when she drinks. <laughs> and then I picked up my rubber mallet. And I had the rubber mallet, and I pounded it in my hand. And I said, oh, yeah, this is the baby. Because hit, hit her over the head every time she drinks, I just hit her over the head until she gets her program straight. I'll just hit her over her head every time she does something wrong. And the rubber mallet is better than the regular metal hammer. It doesn't leave as much of a mark. So I figured, but then I realized that, you know, this wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to work. When I came to Al-Anon, one of the first things he gave me was the serenity prayer. And the Al-Anon decoration. He gave me pamphlets. He gave me the steps. He gave me traditions. He gave me the slogans. One day at a time. Let go and let God. We had a workshop last year, and our members from Carrollton had a friend made up these key rings. Put a Lego block on. Let go. So every time I pick it up, I think of let go and let God. And I run on both our key chains for our cars. So every day I pick up my keys, I grab that baby. I'm going to have it today. 
you know, one of my favorite slogans is think. Because I was blessed with this alligator mouth of mine, with an alligator brain. I would say things, you know, from mouth disease, open my big fat mouth and stick my foot in it. And it's one of my favorite ones, I always, because I, I tried very hard to work at that. And about a little over a year ago, when she was drinking, we had a, uh, we had a nice dinner. And we sat down to have dinner. And said, I want to talk about something. You want to do it now or after dinner? I said, no, let's slow down. I didn't like what she said. And I came back with a smart-ass remark right off the bat, just like that, just like always. She didn't say nothing. She just got up, walked to the garbage can, scooped all the food down in the garbage can, and sat in the living room. Not to be undone, I got up and I went over and I said, well, mine in the garbage can too. You can do it, I can do it. The only difference was I grabbed my keys, my phone, and I went out and I called my sponsor. I didn't engage in the argument, which normally I would have done. So I've learned, sometimes I'm learning hard, sometimes I'm getting there, you know, but this program has meant so much to me. It's changed my life tremendously. We were talking about a little while ago, three years ago, I lost my youngest daughter. <clears throat> She's bipolar, schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia prescription medication, and alcohol. And I always try to let go, let God take care of things. And one of the things you got to understand with letting go with God is, God doesn't work in your time frame. He works in his time frame. So if you expect an answer just like that, it's not going to come. It's going to take time. When he thinks you're ready for that answer, he's going to give it to you. And I always turn around and grab it back and say, oh, I'm going to take care of it. So I call her and go down there and try to help her and everything. It was just, I couldn't do it. And it was interesting. On a Monday night, at the Altoona Hilltopper meeting, uh, the subject was letting go. And we talked about it, and I sat there and I shared, and I said, you know, I'm turning it over to God. I'm not going to get in the way no more. I can't do it no more. Thursday night, they found her dead. God did what I couldn't do. He took care of it. And we went to the, uh, she was down in, down in Florida, we had the service, we had her cremating, brought her back up to uh, here for her service, and we had it at North Star. And we were all sitting up in the front row. I didn't see who was coming in. I wasn't paying attention. And when I get up on the stage to do my part of the eulogy, I was able to look out in the room. And it was felt. There was our church family. There was our AA family. And there was our Alamon family. They were all there to comfort us. My kids, my adult children were so amazed, they could not believe what was happening. That's this program. You're there for us when we have a problem. You're there to pick us up. Now, all through the years that, you know, maybe this program, and, and I'm proud to say that <clears throat> Tuesday she picks up her one-year trip. I'm so proud of her. Last <laughs> year's ground up wasn't too good. She didn't come up here. She drank the whole weekend. But she's gotten better now. You know, God works in strange ways. She lost her mom back in, um, right after my daughter died in 2015. She lost her mom three months later. And she was up there for the last four weeks of her life. She didn't drink. I talked to her three four times a day. I knew she wasn't drinking. But the day after her mom died, she got drunk. And we had another horrible scene up in New Jersey. But we got through the funeral. And, of course, the drinking continued on until, you know, last year. But um, it's the program that works. Now, and God works in strange ways sometimes. He, he knows when things have to be. Last year when she went to get sober in the treatment center, it wasn't the Ritz this time. 
it wasn't like it was the last time she was in for 30 days. I couldn't see her all the time. It was down in Riverdale. If anybody knows where Riverdale is, it's not a very good section of town. It wasn't the nicest quarters in the world, but she stuck it out. She stayed there because she had to do it. And I know God was pushing her because she had to be strong. Her dad got sick. We lost him. Sure. But this program kept her sober and support. There's one thing that I've always done and I've always listened to is one word. Well, not one word, a couple words. Keep coming back. And I've done that all this time. This trigger not I always kept coming back. I can't say enough that, you know, I often think of the people that come to meetings sometimes and they come in, they're broken, they're crying, they're desperate. And we wish we had the silver bullet to tell them how to make their person get better, but we don't. Because you have to take care of yourself. You have to let that person go and take care of themselves. That's the way we have to take care of ourselves and we have to get better. And I, and I, I often look at and see people that come back to meetings after three or four months. And I see the change in their attitudes. They're smiling. They're laughing. The problem is still going on. But they're getting better. But I often worry about the ones that don't come back. What's happened to them? What they're missing out on. They're missing out on just a tremendous way of living. This is our life. I know a lot of people in the Al-Anon program, they come and tell me, I feel like going, I don't want to go to a meeting. They go to one meeting a week, maybe two meetings a week. I typically go to four. And I don't even think twice about it. I know on Monday night I'm going to meet. On Tuesday I'm going to meet. Thursday night and Saturday I know I'm going to meet. And that's all it's good. That's it. You know? And I'm going to meet my sponsor. Well, it's just a different way of living. And I enjoy this. It's great. With that, I guess I've talked too much. You know, when I first came into this program, I didn't want to talk at all. Now I have a tendency I talk too much. <laughs> I get myself in trouble with that sometimes, but I just want to say thank you very much to around the committee and everyone here for coming out and listening to me today. Thank you very much.